0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: It is with heavy hearts that we now have confirmation, that His Royal Highness Prince Robert is gone. Confirmation was made just me. The firstborn
2: son of King Simon and Queen Helena, Prince Robert was a fascinating
1: combination
2: of celebrity...
3: And the
1: palace remains secure, yet tragically silent. Let me recap my week for you. My husband announced he wants to abolish the only life I've ever known. My daughter's vagina was on the cover of no less than four tabloids. My firstborn child was killed.
4: I miss him. With every breath. And what tears at me is the knowledge that he could have been anything in the world. (sighs) I'll not lose another son or daughter to this.
5: They're my children too. They're no worse than any other kids their
6: age.
4: Your daughter was rolling balls in the state dining room. Now she's stoned and eating the Prime Minister's pie. I'm not sure that ending this will heal any of us. But staying the same will destroy us. The English crown has been protected and defended for thousands of
1: years. From clans with sticks through world wars, legions of lives lost. But not this one. Not
4: ours. You are the king of England, damn it. Act like it. That's exactly what I intend to do.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 6th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today. If I can quickly summarize the broader theme of today's show, it would be about voting, democracy, and the apparent disconnect that people sense between the voters and those they vote for, with elections now attracting the attention of the public both here in Canada and south of the border in the United States. This is the major theme I plan to focus on, not so much on the elections or candidates themselves, but the broader issues that seem to concern voters. It's more from the voter end I want to look at today. And our theme of voting and democracy will expand in the second half of our show today into a discussion of the recent Pan Am Games, the tentative bid to host the Olympic Games in Toronto, and finally yet another democratic paradox that has taken place overseas, in Japan no less, one that may dramatically affect the world affairs in as yet unanticipated ways. So, before we get underway, our usual reminder that you can write us at feedback at org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, or visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Listening to the radio this past week and all the commentaries about uh, the upcoming election, it's going to be the longest Canadian election in a long time, and of course... Uh, the Republicans are having their leadership debate starting tonight. Both of these things are starting tonight. And uh, it's f- funny, I was listening to T- Tom McConnell's show again yesterday, and most people who wrote in or called into to him when they were asked what they wanted to hear about the election, it seemed to be more about, you know voting and electoral reform more than the issues themselves. They don't want to talk about social issues, things like gay marriage or drugs. They didn't want to hear about the economy or jobs because, not that it's not important, they just felt that all that stuff is rhetoric anyway and it's all going to sound the same coming from all of the politicians. And, you know, that's I can understand that. But, you know, it seems as if there isn't anything that's taboo when it comes to our believing that we can vote on it. Um, we'll consider voting about anything. <laughs> we talk about voting about voting, <laughs> voting about how we vote, voting about constitutions and monarchies, or whether we should build landing pads for aliens. Just put it on the ballot, and we'll vote for it or again it. Now, you know, this attitude is just so wrong, I think we should have a vote on it. <laughs> you know, everyone has an opinion, but... But one's own opinions should, as a matter of practice, only expand, extend to one's own life, liberty, and property, and not to another person's. And that's where, you know, you got to draw a line between one person's opinion and the other person's right to live by his way of living. And really, only matters of public interest and jurisdiction should ever be voted on. Uh, we should never vote on matters of economics or personal issues beyond those things that, that encompass life, liberty, property. Matters of public interest as a rule affect the entire realm and therefore should be subject to the vote and to the, to the electoral process. So it's, it's going to be one of the longest federal elections in Canada's history with the writ dropped this past Sunday, August 2nd, and the election day slated for October, I have to say that I'm already tired of the election rhetoric, and it hasn't even really gotten underway yet. Uh, you know, it's interesting, just as a side observation, for those of us in Ontario... It's clear now why Kathleen Wynne called the provincial election last year. Otherwise, we'd be right in the middle of that election now, just as the federal election was getting started. We'd have both provincial and federal election signs all over the place. What a mess and confusion that would be. So, you know, Andrea Horwath did not force the last Ontario election by saying that she would not support that budget at the time. Uh, the the writing for a spring election last year was already on the wall and she just tried to get in front of the action by taking some political credit for it Uh, a politically suicidal kind of credit given that her party no longer held the balance of power in the previous minority provincial legislature after the election when of course the liberals got a, a majority now Federally, everyone's saying that a long election will benefit the conservatives because they have the most money of the officially registered political parties. It's funny... In my personal experience, long elections tend to disfavor the incumbent government and favor almost all of the other parties who tend to rise the longer the election drags on. And what I discovered when, when you know, I was initially involved in Freedom Party, we even got high enough on, in the polls by the end of a longer election period that we actually started registering on the polls. But as the elections got shorter and shorter, that became less the case. And as to third-party advertising, given some of what I've been hearing, that advertising intended, you know, to criticize one party in favor of another may in actual may in actual fact be perhaps doing the reverse and not having the effect that they want. Uh, All parties who pick interest groups to quote represent whether business, the family, the consumer, the farmer, the ex-industry group, et cetera, et cetera, you know, completely. Uh, they kind of repulse me on a basic moral fundamental. I don't think they should be playing favorites and because I don't think parties that think that way are operating in the general interest. Now, each party, of course, wants to impose its brand upon the nation, the province, or whichever jurisdiction is relevant, and I'm kind of speaking to all of them today, all all of jurisdictions. And, you know, with you have these subjective adjectives as the name of the parties, which I've talked about a lot recently, you know, liberal, conservative, democratic, libertarian, green, etc. Voters really have no idea of what any of these parties might do or might not do once voted into power. Rarely do politicians campaign on their true agendas. Campaigns cater to voters, most of whom are entirely ignorant of and oblivious to some of the major party agendas that are going on in the background. But as voters, if that's the case, well, they only have themselves to blame. For my part, as a founding member of the Freedom Party of Ontario, the name freedom of course is not an adjective, nor does it define or prescribe the type of person who might be a supporter. You can't be a freedom the way you can be a a liberal or a conservative. It defines the what of Freedom Party, not the who. The other parties simply define the who's and not the what's. You know, a liberal what, a conservative what. In fact, there are liberal conservatives and there are conservative liberals, but are they liberally conservative uh, about what? <laughs> that's the question that's rarely answered in elections, which is why, after each election, uh, you know, results in the ongoing, you know, disasters of the voted-in party. Everybody's going, what? <laughs> Wind farms? When did we vote on that? Sex ed and lower grades? What? When did we vote on that? Affirmative consent? What? What's that? And all these things that come in. That's provincial, of course. Now, to be fair, you know, the name freedom as an adjective of the party to which it is attached also does not define what a freedom party might do. But it does define what such a party would not do namely violate life, liberty, or property in the course of its mandate to govern all people equally. Freedom requires certain objective principles to be in play. It's funny that all parties play to the, to the idea that we're here to preserve our democracy and freedom, which is a big issue that people are concerned about in an election. And these Principles need to be fully supported by true liberals, true conservatives, and two Democrats. Small C, small D, you know, and small L, as opposed to the large L, large C, large D parties who use those adjectives all in the name of some form of socialism or one of its many variants. You know, in a way, every declared election period is also a declaration of war, a civil war in which political disagreements between citizens of the same jurisdiction are resolved, though not ultimately Not without the use of force or violence. Voting is not where the action is in a democracy, believe it or not. Everybody's just so uptight about their vote. Political parties are where all of the action is, either for change or for stability. That's where all the action takes place. The voting process is merely the stamp of approval or of rejection of the given few proposals. Political parties as such are pretty much the only quote-unquote non-violent means to affect or change the policies of the current administration and power. Yet every political reform idea I've heard so, so far seems to undermine that incredibly critical political discipline in the political marketplace by replacing it with notions of, of uh, direct democracy which means that voters who cannot be possibly informed enough on many of the critical slate issues get to vote on the basis of their personal needs and preferences and not in the interests of the general, um, you know, country or the structure that keeps it together. Yesterday's Free Press ran an article, and you know, every election, it's, it's the same pattern. I see these same articles. You just change the names and you've got the same article written just by someone else who's trying to get the same, the same old message across. And that is, uh, this one was by Pete McMartin, who was in the London Free Press, I guess they got this one out of, let me see, the Vancouver Sun, originally. And he says, no valid excuses for not voting in the federal election. And um, again, we hear, he says, we, we've heard all the excuses before. But they're worth going over again, as one might rototill manure a second time to dissipate the smell, he says. And he's talking about excuses people use to not vote. And he had, I think, five of them here. And the first one says, the present first-past-the-post system distorts the popular vote and creates apathy among voters. Really, he asks, would we be better off with the unstable coalitions that a representational vote would create? Well, I wholeheartedly agree with what he's implying here in his first point. First past the post is better than proportional representation, but I'll I'll be expanding on that a little bit more later on in the show. His second one, his second point is, all politicians are crooks. He says, this is the humbug of the ignorant. The truth is quite the opposite, which is Canada is well served by its political class. And then he gives a few examples, mostly on the municipal level. (coughs) Now... I agree that most politicians are not crooks. You know, most, most of the people I see in politics are honest people trying to get something done. At least, at least not crooks in the traditional sense that most think. You know, a politician who cheats or steals for his or her own direct personal gain. But almost all of them are, quote-unquote, crooks, crooks in the sense of their willingness to steal on behalf of somebody else. And, you know, it's their willingness to rob Peter to pay Paul, Right. Or as past Ontario Premier Ernie Eaves once explained to Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever on an open line show, quote, the purpose of government is to redistribute wealth, end quote. Sounds pretty crooked to me. (laughs) Third point that this writer brings up all political parties are the same and it doesn't matter what party you vote for and he says more humbug Canada's political parties hold radically different positions and anyone who thinks otherwise is either stupid or too lazy to, l- to read the literature or believes easy cynicism passes for wisdom uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement but whether two parties are seen as being different or are seen as being the same of, as each other depends on the person making that judgment doesn't it? based on what that person expects or desires from government. If the voter is a single-issue voter and two parties happen to agree on that issue, then all of their other differences become somewhat meaningless or irrelevant to that particular voter. The Green Movement, for example, would sacrifice a healthy economy, a disciplined and limited government, and even freedom and democracy itself, all in the name of protecting the environment. So... There's a lot of things here. This, I think, is more about the voter, again, than it is about the parties, whether they view them the same. Uh, See, when I talk about the parties being the same, I'm always speaking from a perspective of freedom, democracy, and individual rights, that that they don't seem to have that same respect that, that we would like to see all political parties have for those concepts. And number four, he says, the campaign didn't capture the electorate's imagination. He says, voting is an obligation. Well, I disagree with that. Voting is a right. Granted, only to those who qualify for that right under strictly defined rules. If voting were an obligation, then it couldn't be a right, since one would be forced to vote, which is another one of those insane suggestions that's made from time to time. If you uh, have to vote, then you don't have a right to vote. Anything you have a right to means that you have a right to say no. That's what a right is. And he writes that perhaps that's why the largest voter turnouts came in the decades after the Second World War. Perhaps, perhaps the visceral connection between sacrifice and the democratic process was more evident to voters then because it was literally paid for in blood. Now that last point about the connection between the democratic process and the blood with which it was paid for I think is a very valid observation and brings us back to our own observation that the voting process is in many ways a substitute for the spilling of blood, at least until we vote for the wrong things. Then the spilling of blood becomes practically inevitable no matter how much we might wish to vote our way out of the consequences. Would you vote to abolish the monarchy, for example, if such an option was offered to you? If your answer is yes, would you vote this way before knowing what that monarchy might be replaced with? Or would you just vote against it to be rid of the monarchy, even if some sort of anarchy ensued afterwards? Well, I see no reason to argue or discuss making major changes in the structure or form of our various governments today, which have evolved since the Magna Carta to what they are today and most of the people who are seeking electoral reform at the voting level and at the representational level of government are usually those who wish to be free of the constraints that our political or our current forms of government place on those who govern us. They want to spend the national treasury to depletion. And that's precisely what some of these constraints, like a functioning Senate, for example, were created to prevent. But let's take a look further at this, and this next clip again is from uh, the, the BBC series, The Royals, in which uh, the, the fictional king decides he wants to have a referendum about the monarchy itself. We'll be back.
4: Mom, Dad, this is Ophelia. Ophelia Price, artist in residence.
5: For His Majesty's Silver Jubilee, I presented him with a very serious work of art.
4: I can recall you were working in the paste and yarn medium at the time.
5: I retired shortly thereafter.
4: What's your focus now?
1: Art history at Churchill.
4: I feel you're using a
1: honours degree, art history and dance. Which is grand news indeed. As the Prime Minister himself recently expressed a concern about the shortage of frolicking art historians, I'm sure you'll be working your way to a great future. Well, she is
5: dining with the future King of England, and so she's got that going for her.
3: It's good that you're here, Ophelia. You can give us the common point of view. How is the public faring in the wake of Robert's death? I think we'll go.
5: Robert carried himself with a nobility and grace that was easy to admire. He was inspiring, and he was ours. But I can only speak from this commoner's perspective.
3: You say he was yours, but you're American.
5: My mom was American, but I was born here and raised in the States because it was... Because
4: it was safer. Please stay. I appreciate your kind words about Robert, Ophelia, I do. Robert joined the military because I did, like my father before me and his father before him, and so on. Robert was killed by tradition. He died a hero's death. A noble death. Which merely means he's dead. And why? I seem to have lost my appetite. I think you'll want to stay to hear this next part, my love. I think you all will. So put away your phones and your drugs and your lust for the service sponge and pay attention. I'm considering asking Parliament for a referendum. To abolish the monarchy.
5: What does that mean, exactly? Um, uh, That means that you'll have to get a job.
3: A vote, idiot of my loins, to eradicate us, to erase us.
4: Y- yeah, but, but who votes? The people. Yeah, but they can't do that. I mean, they're the people, you know, and we're like us.
3: They can, and they have. Ever heard of America?
1: Oh, but <clears throat> I do not want to be American. I do not want to walk around like Justin Bieber with no shirt on and my trousers hanging off. He's Canadian. Even worse.
4: They can't make us Canadian, can they, Daddy? Canadian and poor, just like Justin Bieber.
3: The British monarchy always has been and always will
4: be. Always will be, killed Robert. The people need the monarchy. The people need bread and jobs. And a decent wage. They
2: don't need us.
3: With all due respect, my king, how would you know?
2: You know, to his credit, (laughs) I got the impression that King Simon um, actually took that last question to heart and began his own investigation. I haven't seen the the whole season of the royals yet, so I can't yet comment on how that all worked out. King Simon, the fictional king who suggested abolishing the monarchy and having a referendum, was, as we say, screwing up royally. He was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Or in other words, in more literal terms, he was throwing the constitutional monarchy out with the royal family, both of which are intricately intertwined. Of course, his focus was not on the government or crown, but on his own family members. Here again, there are other remedies for royals who do not wish to continue in that official capacity without abolishing the monarchy. Abolishing the monarchy would not give the British people anything they didn't have before. It would take something away. And I think that's sort of a reputable human symbol of trust and longevity of the British Empire. And let us never forget that the royal family, the members of the bloodline who are today the symbols of that monarchy, is a completely separate discussion from that of a constitutional monarchy itself, which is a specific form of government. And here again we have an example of abolishing a form of governance for the purpose of achieving a personal or unrelated end. It's an interesting phrase, you know, often used by we commoners, screwing up royally. A royal screw-up is one that affects the entire realm and everyone who lives within it. Funny, I heard a DJ on the funny 1410 AM radio station over the weekend, and he was saying, uh, you know, quote, 42% would prefer an elected head of state. But from what I've seen, those we vote for are worse than royalty, and then we'd have to have more elections, and that would increase the costs to more than having a royal family or something along those lines. Of course, uh, Canada's constitutional monarchy was an organic evolution of governance from the beginning, uh, starting with tribal roots, absolute rule and reign, and then evolving from a dominion of kings, a kingdom, to a dominion of free citizens, a freedom. Reforming this order of governance so that it resembles a republic, we hear a lot of people talking about that, which is a little more of a a corporate um, formation rather than an organic one is really neither here nor there in the grand scheme of things. We've looked at this many times on the show. Both forms uh, of government could continue to be free democracies or tyrannies founded under the same structure. But whether a constitutional monarchy or a republic, no form of government is safe from tyranny if its people are not eternally vigilant about it, which is increasingly you know, more the situation. We're becoming less vigilant. On the positive side of the coin, both a republic and a constitutional monarchy are capable of supporting and sustaining the basic principles of a free society, free from tyranny and coercion. Each has certain advantages and disadvantages from the point of preserving a free society of sovereign individuals. But after many discussions of the details of each you know, form of government on this show, I would say that both even Robert Vaughan and I, we, we, we've sort of found ourselves leaning in favor of a constitutional monarchy over a republic. I just want to look at a few other ideas that are being tossed out there in terms of electoral reform and the frustration. One of the stupidest ideas ever to come out of a voter, and it just drives me crazy, is encouraging more people to vote. You know, why not just throw your voting power away entirely while you're at it? Every additional voter in your own riding only waters down the effect of your own vote in terms of that single vote's influence. The fewer people who vote, the better it is for those voters who do vote. Every additional voter waters down the power of each individual vote, eventually turning the whole process into a matter of chance and fate rather than one of choice. More voters does not equate with more choices, whether 100% of voters show up to vote or only 35% show up. The electoral results will very much be likely the same in both instances. And that's easy to see if you only have, say, one party or candidate to vote for. Simple, yeah, whether one, one person shows up or a million, that's the answer. But with two, you know, to five, six or even more candidates on a ballot, it's amazing to discover that the same principle applies. Their relative vote totals to each other remain generally in the same proportion with large or with small turnouts. At least that's been the observations that I've seen over the years and all sorts of pundits and people who study that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's the result they see. Now, we have often hear this statement, you know, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. And I think the big frustration with most voters is they want to think that election, elections and their vote actually matter, that, 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 they're, that it's worth going out to do. Unfortunately, a lot of those people also want the government to do something wrong. So it's not about the right to vote, but the wrong to vote. They're voting for governments that actually promise not to govern and give them freebies at someone else's expense. And more to the point, and let's not forget this, voters vote in opposition to each other. That's why voting is necessary in the first place. One group of voters wants to rob another group of voters and the side with the largest number wins. End of story. So when you hear the plea for more voters to show up at the polls, that's usually from those voters who want more voters on their side of the issue to get out and vote. Would the New new Democrats be calling for larger vote turnout if they knew most voters who don't vote would vote Liberal or Conservative? I don't think so. What what's missing in the field of elections, not of politics, but in elections, is that whole dimension of morality and basically even issues. Because by if, if you haven't if you haven't decided who you're going to vote for by now, you're probably not that tuned into the issues, and and certainly in terms of deciding what is the right or wrong thing to do. But we don't vote for the whats in an election; and we vote for the whos, the specific candidates who are supposed to represent a certain kind of what. And, uh, you know, all the moral issues were decided long before the election. The election is just the, the final stamp on where we're going from that point on. Um, you know, another issue, too, that comes up is, uh, we heard it earlier from the, from, the, from the columnist early, first past the post is constantly under attack when it's not the problem. Proportional representation guarantees a drift politically leftward, since without a clear majority, no party is able to govern according to its own agenda and principles. Both are eternally compromised from the outset under such an arrangement and at the root of the voting process, no matter how many political parties are in existence or even in the legislature, parliament or congress, the voting process really always narrows the playing field down to two key players. When a third or even fourth party capture a significant number of the votes, enough to prevent a single party from getting a clear majority, that's when the problems arise. But other options besides PR do exist, not just coalitions, etc. Though I'm not a fan of PR, I have no objection to a ranked ballot where voters can select a second-choice candidate should their first choice otherwise be discounted. But depending on how the voting process works, this system is fraught with danger for the voter. Who, by indicating a second choice, may inadvertently result in defeating his first choice. This, this happened a lot lot in municipal elections when we used to have two candidates in each riding. You might vote for the second one, and you preferred the first one to get in, but the second one got more votes than your first choice, so you lost your first choice. And you also want to avoid setting up pluralistic ridings in any voting setup, which means you know you only want one elected rep per riding, not two or three or four, no more than one. It's not the dele- the electoral system that's broken. If there's a valid complaint, it's about the direction that government is taking. Another issue that bothers me a bit is this whole talk about abolishing the Senate. This is another babies and bathwater situation, throwing one out with the other. Scandals are not a reason to reform government structure. They are a reason to reform policies and politicians. But that's only a passing muse, I guess, and not very realistic. I always used to laugh, you know, everybody wanted a triple E fe- uh, Senate, elected, effective and equal. Or on the other side, the triple E people were the eliminate, eliminate, eliminate faction. Am I to take it seriously that we're considering abolishing the Senate just because of the expense sa- scandals that have plagued a handful of Senators? Why not just go all the way and abolish the House of Commons or the Legislature while we're at it? I could cite more than a few corruptions and indiscretions within the hallowed halls of these privileged institutions. Corrupt politician? Hey, just get rid of the government, right? No government, no corrupt politician. There's a libertarian logic for you. The structure of the Senate ha- has or had a clear function, one predicated on the idea that it was not supposed to be an elected body, though its members come from or are appointed by an elected source. Sober second thought is how I've heard it expressed from time to time. You know, the Senate's status operates a bit like tenure or a bit like the monarchical role in a sense of the stability it's supposed to offer in turbulent or controversial times, free from the whims of public fads and short-term thinking. Um, not literally, of course, just trying to capture the sense of it. Reform all the governments you want. So long as the same people are running the show, you'll have the same problems. Errant senators and fraudulent expenses or expense reports already have clear solutions, and you can have criminal prosecutions or other civil and political remedies, etc., etc. Now, for people who think that politics doesn't change things and that voting doesn't matter, well, I can tell you how, how times do change because, and in a short period of time, Coming up next on our break will be the the comedian Kenny Robinson who talks about the differences between Canada and the US in, in terms of our politics and this was recorded some time ago when Kenny Robinson had no way of knowing about 9/11 and how that would change you know the environment even here in Canada at the time Clinton was president Cretchen was prime minister of Canada Harris was premier of Ontario Mayor Mel Lastman was the mayor of Toronto <laughs> And, of course, he would never expect that someone like Barack Obama would be president or that Stephen Harper would be on his way to his fourth run at being prime minister or that someone like Rob Ford would even ever have been the mayor of Toronto. So politics does change things, even if you think voting itself seems to have little effect. We'll be back.
6: Thank you big news junkie. Man, I'm glad that American election's over, huh? That, that's, it took them seven weeks to determine a winner, you know? they took them seven weeks to figure out who voted for who, whereas an election in Canada, it would take seven years to find out if anybody voted for anyone. That would be the difference. <laughs> that's what I love about the difference between the United States. Our, 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 our politics are completely different, you know? If, if, you, if, if you think about it, it's like, Chrétien, he uh, he got hit with a pie. Americans have a history of political assassination. Our Prime Minister gets hit with a pie. Now, as Canadians, that can't make us feel too damn proud. No, it feels terrible knowing that any disgruntled, simple Simon on the way to the fair can take out our Prime Minister. And who in the hell is in charge of security? Barney Fife? What the hell is going on here? You know, who was the Mountie in charge? Uh, Oh, it wasn't me. I was watching the guy with the cupcakes. I was in charge of cupcakes. I wasn't watching the pie guys. I was watching the cupcake guy. I mean, that's embarrassing. In the United States, with the security they have for Clinton, you can't get close enough to him anymore, you know? anybody see that woman on the news she asked clinton for an autograph and she lifted up her shirt she had 25 secret service agents on top of her we just saw 238 we thought the president was in danger we wanted to make sure she didn't have any plastic explosion implants I guess so we can become proud, I mean, the Americans, they think they have the, the, the circle and all the political scandal. I mean, they, they had a whoremonger for a president, and now they've, uh, they've elected uh, a guy with great coke connections. But uh, I think we can be proud that uh, we, have, uh, we have Mayor Lassman, ladies and gentlemen, the deadbeat dad of Canadian politics. Huh? Mel is the baby daddy. I think that's interesting, because Clinton only had to worry about, you know, DNA on a dress, okay? Poor male has walking, talking, breathing evidence against him. <laughs> it's unfortunate that way. My dad is the mayor on the next Ricky Lake show. He doesn't want to pay child support, huh? Isn't that incredible? Well, you know, who's going to pay for their illegitimate children? <laughs> no! I guess he probably wants uh, uh, he wants uh, Harris to get the rest of the province to pay for that as well. Why should I pay for that? Why <laughs> downloading? That was no good.
5: Yeah, come in. We gotta talk to you. Okay. Yeah, how you doing? Hey, uh,
0: yeah. Hi, so we just wanted to talk to you about this. Um, we really do not want the Olympics to ever be in Portland.
5: Oh, why? We, we just went to London, and that whole place is overrun with Olympic stuff. It's
0: ruined. There's just construction going up everywhere. It's just, it's gonna be a mess.
5: Right. I love this concern for the city. This sounds terrible, in, what's happening in London. It's all jocks. You know how, like, jocks are the worst? Imagine international jocks. Right. Like, like Some guy go- from Sydney coming in of Portland.
0: I mean a co whatever, it's just no it's yeah. gonna
5: ruin the whole vibe. Yeah. Of the city. Some like right. Scottish woman, you know? Some just some shot put lady like right. oh
0: look right. at that. It's great. Oh look at that. Oh, look at the coffee. Yeah. Don't believe that.
5: We can't have that here. Yeah. Absolutely not. Let's get him on the phone. Sam, can you get the I.O.C.C. on the phone and then just patch it into here? Okay. So we'll wait.
0: And you know what they used for like the theme song? The Clash, London Calling. That's really? A, that is not a song that has anything to do with yeah, like patriotism or, oh, you know, such a
5: National Pride. It was Come a mascot, on. do you remember? Did they have a mascot? The Clash? He's got him on the line. Okay. Yes, hello. Hello. This is the mayor of Portland, Oregon calling. Ever heard of it. And we just want you to know something. We don't ever want to have the Olympics here in this city. Ever. Ever. If there's a list, we don't wanna be on the list. We don't even wanna be anywhere near the Olympics. Thank you. We should take this to the people. It's a democratic city. People have to have a voice.
0: We will go (laughs) as if, you know, this is Paul Revere's midnight ride. This needs to be a grassroots campaign. Totally, we just gotta get out
5: there. No, Olympics, no, no, no. Olympics, Olympics. no, no, Olympics.
0: We, we, yes. we will simplify well, that. Fingers yeah. Okay.
5: Listen, and I've got I've got these hats. I don't know if um, we just got these in, uh-huh. and maybe you might want to wear these out. Um, maybe when you're um, I'm not a hat guy. Why don't you take this hat? No, I like this hat. It's just P D X. It's like black, gold, I like the highlight of gold,
0: mm-hmm.
5: black. It's good. Oh, I've got uh, two thousand on order.
0: Great. Yeah.
5: Nice. So. <clears throat> No Olympics. Yeah, we don't want our, our city to turn into London. Can we get out there and do it? Yes, go, All right, go. No, no Olympics, Olympics in Portland. No Olympics in Portland. No Olympics in Portland. Portland.
6: No, no Olympics,
5: Olympics in Portland. Portland. No it's Portland. Olympics Portland. It's great. Oh, Fred, you forgot the hat. Fred. Oh. Sam, send him a, a box of hats, various sizes.
2: <laughs> what a silly show. <laughs> Portlandia. You know, neither the mayor of Portlandia nor the two protesters leading the charge against the, their local Olympics spoke to the real concern that most people have, and that's the cost to taxpayers and the net economic loss to the economy that, ine- en- that inevitably occurs with such events, with one exception, and that was the Los Angeles Olympics of 1984. Of course, from a politician's point of view, hosting grand sporting events is not about the sport. It's about getting government money from all levels of government to fund infrastructure, which has some value, and the construction of sporting facilities, which always lose money. Invariably, the majority of the public's opposed to hosting such events, and invariably, politicians in the bid-winning cities simply go ahead and fund them anyway. Once you understand this process, you'll also understand that it was relatively inevitable that Ontario's recent hosting of the Pan Am Games, which from a financial and economic point of view was a, a net loss, despite what they tell you, of untold proportions that would be followed by yet another taxpayer boondoggle that's a proven money loser, the hosting of the Olympics. As the individual here who was chair of the No Tax for Pan Am Games Committee, which successfully defeated a bid to host the 1991 Pan Am Games here in London, At a projected cost of $110 million locally, I can speak from experience that taxpayers are not necessarily appreciative or supportive of the people who win an issue for them, even if they are appreciative and supportive of the issue's outcome, unless the issue has been won temporarily. Then they go about their business because they all go back into this democratic deep sleep. This year's hosting of the Pan Am Games was spread across many venues in the province, and from the very beginning of the project, uh, scandals were already the order of the day. Good old David Peterson, Ontario's premier before Bob Ray, can always be found at the centre of these orgies of taxpayers spending on sporting projects. I've spoken at length on past broadcasts well in advance of the Pan Am Games of the fiscal folly and the true political motivations that caused such bread-and-circus events to occur. Prior to the Pan Am Games starting in Ontario, the media negativity about the event was quite outrageous, actually. I can hear crickets commented Steve Garrison on one of his shows after asking listeners who among them was planning to attend or watch the Pan Am Games. Newspaper headlines like, apathy is rampant in the city, or Pan Am games, what games, or no denying Pan Am's a tough sell uh, appeared in the papers everywhere. Still, as always, once the event itself got underway, attention rightly focused on the athletes and competitions. But even before the games were over, the politicians were already looking forward to the next sporting spending spree. Pan Am Games could set stage for Toronto Olympics bid, read the National Post headline on June 30th, and which was followed about a week later on July 8th by an editorial penned by Robin Urbach with the headline, Olympic Games in Toronto? Oh God, no. (laughs) There's a headline for you. In that editorial, Urbach cited the real reason that such events are staged. Quote, Speaking to the National Post last week, Mayor John Tory defended the Games, saying that these sorts of international events often act as catalysts to complete major infrastructure projects. Quote, whether it's the Olympics of the, Pan, of the Pan Am Games or these kinds of things, they open on a given day and you have to be ready, he said. The train to the airport wouldn't be running yet if the Pan Am Games weren't happening, end quote. That's possibly true, she continues, but it is also a terrible reason to host a colossal, colossally expensive, hugely disruptive event. Sure, you might get a, a new rail link, but you'll also get embarrassing efforts at displacing the homeless, as in Atlanta, Vancouver, and Beijing. Real estate inflation like Sydney and Barcelona, massive cost open, overruns, which happened for virtually every Olympic game since the 1960s, but most egregiously in Montreal. Soki and Barcelona... And empty and underused facilities. Last year, Toronto's Economic Development Committee effectively quashed the prospect of making a bid to host the 2024 Summer Olympics, which would have cost an absurd $60 million just to make the bid. Toronto now has until September 15 to reverse that decision and put forth its nomination. You see, see, there's democracy in action. You can never count on a decision ever being permanent. And she says to that, I say, dear God, no, stop, turn around. We already know how this story ends. I can't fathom why we'd want to repeat it, end quote. Well, she reported the reason herself, to create a catalyst to complete the major infrastructure projects. I couldn't possibly count the number of times I heard that word catalyst used over and over again in London's past bid to host the 1991 Pan Ams Games. It's a phony argument and only keeps the big lie going. But let's make it clear from the outset, as we always did even with our past opposition to the games, that this criticism and opposition has nothing to do with the athletes or performers or those who participate in the games. That's not what any of this is about. What it's really about is about how our elected representatives and past elected representatives simply continue to lie to us about the fiscal facts surrounding such events. Is that necessary? No matter how much evidence and logic there is, to the contrary, nothing seems to stop them from keeping the economic mythology alive. One person who apparently could see the forest for the trees was columnist Anthony Fury, who in his July 31st uh, commentary that showed up in the London Free Press, Olympic bid may raise more bills than boasts, uh, points out, and I quote, Since 1980, the average cost overruns for the Summer Olympics have been 252%. Remember, that's average. And he quotes Andrew Zimbalist, an economics professor at Smith College in Massachusetts, in his book, his new book, Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. He says his research presents many inconvenient truths for backers of a Toronto bid, but it's important people hear them now, well in advance of the September 15 deadline for Mayor John Tory and the Canadian Olympic Committee to send their letter of interest to the International Olympic Committee. It's detrimental that any city seeking a bid has residents on board. Uh, because, of course, there's always resistance among residents. Right now, support for a Toronto bid is high, at least in the city itself. A forum research poll released Tuesday showed 61% of residents supported the bid. But will that number stay the same once more hard questions are asked? Likely not. The second most troubling piece of evidence behind the cost over rums is, is the truth on tourism and trade. Zimbalist uses the London 2012 games as an example. They spent over $18 billion, all figures in U.S. dollars. They took in $5 billion in Olympic revenues, leaving a deficit of $13 billion. If this isn't bad enough, the shortfall wasn't made up by any broader revenues. Not only did London not increase tourism, research found, tourism, in fact, went down. And the combined economic studies in the previous summer games leads Zimbalist to conclude, quote, there is no empirical evidence that says there are hard gains for the local economy as a result of hosting. Some may argue that Toronto will benefit from the economies of scale, the idea that because we've shelled out for the Pan Am facilities, they can be used or modified in the 2024 Olympics, saving us costs but Zimbalis points out that Rio de Janeiro will be spending $20 billion on the 2016 Games, greater than London spent, and they not only hosted the Pan Am Games in 2007, but the World Cup in 2014. If there are any economies of scale, they certainly didn't materialize there. Toronto will also need to start from scratch with its Athletes Village, the one used for the Pan Am Games, is made up of new residential buildings that were used for the games prior to the buyers getting ownership. And besides, the Pan Am village hosted 10,000, the Olympic village will need 17,000. There will be no hard benefits to hosting the 2024 Olympics. So this is the question taxpayers have to ask themselves. Do you want to shell out billions of dollars for the fun of it, for the sake of winning a few medals, for national pride, for glory? because that's likely all you're going to get out of it. And quote uh, from Anthony Fury, if if I were to be cynical about the headline of this essay, Olympic bid may raise more bills than boasts, I might be inclined to say, hey, exactly, that's precisely why the Olympic and Pan Am bids are made in the first place. Those promoting the games are the ones whose names are on the bills, (laughs) whether literally or figuratively, and they have every right to boast that they simply walked away with our money while we sat there and did nothing. But they're wise to keep silent in this regard. But here again, note that from a voting and democratic point of view, politicians don't listen to the majority when it conflicts even with domestic spending projects that are big-time money losers all around, except for the people to whom we lose our money too. So if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal or simply not have one, because the truth is voting can change things, but only if that choice is offered. And speaking of governments that apparently do not listen to their majority citizens, on the other side of our upcoming break, we'll explore another example of this democratic phenomenon on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, namely Japan, where yet another democracy demonstrates that voting and democracy can indeed be two different things.
0: Olympics. No, No. Olympics. Olympics. No, no, No. No. Olympics. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, Olympics. I said no. Olympics. No, no. Olympics. I said no. I
6: said no. I said no. I said said never. Olympics. No. Olympics. No, Olympics of Portland. No, Olympics of Portland. No, Olympics of Portland. No Olympics in Portland.
0: Excuse me, what are you saying? No Olympics in Portland, man. Why? We're trying to save our city from the evil Olympic Empire. That's so crazy. I mean, uh, the Olympics breathe life into the city. Whatever, buddy. Uh, I mean, I should know. I've been in a few Olympics. My name's Greg Louganis. What? No way. Yeah, I was in Montreal, Los Angeles, Seoul. You're not Greg Louganis. I am too, Greg Louganis. I know, like I'm. Greg Louganis is like Greg Louganis. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. 88 I hit my head on the board. Yes. Right? Yes. In yes. Yeah. But I came back and won. See, that's the scar. Oh, wow. Jeez. Wow. Hi. Nice hi. to hi. meet you. Hi. 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 Yeah. yeah. You're Greg Levine. Yeah. Hello. Okay. Uh, you know what? Your, your your concept about the Olympics is like totally whack. I mean, we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. Do uh, uh, okay. you want to go somewhere and talk about it? I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. That'd be great. So, what are you so afraid of? I mean, what scares you the most about the Olympics coming to Portland? It's just like all the traffic and like Commercialism. Yeah, and this is like all those athletes. Like, no offense, but running around with their big muscles—that's such a wrong way of thinking. I mean, have you ever been to an Olympic Village? No, I've been to like, Santa's Village. I've been to Greenwich Village? No way near the Olympic Village. And the Olympic Village—you have athletes from all over the world. I mean, from countries that you've never heard of, like Tonga.
3: wanted to see me.
1: We've come to warn you, sir. If you go to the base tomorrow morning, your life will be in danger.
3: What do you mean? Somebody's trying to kill me?
1: Oh, no. No, please don't ask us to explain. We can't. And if we did, you wouldn't believe us. But if you do go there, you might die. What, are you drunk or... Is this some kind of a threat? Who are you? Please, you've got to believe us. You've got to. Commander, we're trying to save your well, life. Now, look, I want the truth here. I'm going to call the police. Sir, we know for absolute fact Japan will launch a mass air attack on Pearl Harbor tomorrow morning at 7.55. Well,
3: that's impossible. It couldn't happen.
1: Sir, it will happen. Her <laughs>
3: fleet couldn't approach us without our knowing
1: about it. Japan has deployed one-third of her fleet toward Indochina to make us think that her next move will be southward. But at this very moment, the other two-thirds of her fleet are approaching Hawaii from the north. What's your source of information? At Annapolis, you studied higher mathematics, even thought of being a mathematician. How did you know that? You're familiar with relativity mechanics. The concept and use of time is a real dimension. Yes. And that it's possible to travel in time as well as space.
3: <laughs> well, maybe. It's only a theory, years and years into the
1: future. Exactly. We come from the future. In days to come, Commander, every American will know the words, Remember Pearl Harbor.
3: Remember what at Pearl Harbor?
1: Remember the attack we just told you about tomorrow morning.
3: You're not drunk. So all I can assume is that you're both a pair of
1: lunatics. Commander, please, you've got to...
3: In either
0: case, I find your behavior highly offensive, if not dangerous.
2: (laughs) You, You know... I never understood why the characters, uh, Tony and Doug, the time travelers in the TV series, The Time Tunnel, never figured out. You just can't go back in time. Expect people not to think you're, you're nuts when you tell them you've gone through time. But interesting. I have to confess I was completely oblivious to and ignorant of some of the extraordinary developments that took place in the country of Japan last week. And, uh, uh, you know, I've often wondered why we didn't hear more about the Japanese military action on the world stage of broader conflicts. And thanks to Gwynn Dyer's column in the Free Press on July 26, he points out how there was a big change a, a couple of weeks ago brought in by uh, ja- uh, Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, who has apparently in a sense revoked article nine of japan's post-war peace constitution by reinterpreting it and he points out article nine says quote the japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes land sea and air forces as well as other war potentials will never be maintained end quote and he says it's very hard to change the japanese constitution it requires a two-third majority in each house of parliament plus a national referendum to change or drop Article 9 and uh, of course he says A- Abby would certainly lose that referendum 80% of Japanese like Article 9 and he finds that ironic since it was written into the post-war Japanese Constitution in 1946 by the American o- occupation authorities who feared that Japan might remilitarize and become an international threat again And he says, uh, by the mid-1950s, the U.S. was locked into a Cold War confrontation with communist China, the Soviet Union, and it badly wanted Japanese military support in Asia. Now, he also points out that in the reality of situation in Japan, around 400 people, politicians, industrialists, and senior bureaucrats make almost all the decisions in Japan. Moreover, they've been intermarrying for generations, which explains, he says, perhaps why the grandson of a class A war criminal is now prime minister, which is a long story he gets into. But he says, most members of the elite have wanted Japan to be free to fight wars again. They aren't thinking about aggressive wars, of course, only just wars. The big stumbling block has been popular opinion, but Abe has found his way around that. Not even sure if I'm pronouncing it properly, but it's just spelled A-B-E. If you can't win a referendum on a constitutional change, don't hold one. Just reinterpret Article 9. Declaring Article 9 allows... Uh, collective defense, end quote, even if there's no direct threat to Japan or its people. That covers just about every contingency you can imagine. And last week he pushed through, through two bills through Parliament that reshape military policy and structures in accord with that reinterpretation. The opposition parties apparently walked out and thousands demonstrated, but the deed is done. And he concludes by saying, no doubt that will make the world a safer place. That was Gwyn Dyer. Now, to be completely honest, I not really sure if he was being sarcastic or not with that last sentence. It could be interpreted two ways. Yes, the world would be safer with another quote unquote Western power in the arena, or no, the world would be far more dangerous with yet another power interest in the military playing board. Now, Article 9 of Japan's post-war peace constitution is a wonderful concept and idea on its own, you know, forever renounce war as a sovereign right of a nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. But forever is a long time on any scale and in politics forever rarely lasts an entire generation. World War I was the war to end all wars based on the false belief that simply remembering how terrible it would be it was would be a deterrent enough to prevent another war which followed only 25 years later which included an alliance between Germany and Japan unfortunately in the long term concepts like Article 9 only work if the rest of the world is operating on a similar principle kinda of like the prime directive in the world of Star Trek but even there It only works within the Federation and all all participants of the Federation are always confronted with the task of military action and defense from outside. There is no escaping these realities in a universe where rational beings are capable of behaving irrationally. And war and politics are pretty much the same thing. The threat or use of force as a means of settling disputes. Those disputes that are fought as wars could be international or domestic. Same thing with politics. Finally, consider the implications from the point of view of voting and democracy. Here we have an example in Japan of the few in power, exercising that power in such a way that conflicts with the wishes of some 80 percent of the population. There was no vote on the issue, which is not the same as saying that no one voted for the party that voted on the issue. Surprise! Political parties and candidates are where the voters true options lie on voting day. But despite what D- Dyer has revealed to us in terms of how Japan has uh, interpreted its way back onto the world military stage, Japan nevertheless remains a democracy, at least for the time being, which is the best I could say about most Western democracies. Prior to World War One and Two, no one would ever have guessed how the world's powers would be realigned only six or seven decades on. If what Dyer is suggesting here holds true, the military world stage could indeed have a new major player in the field, one that could affect in in so many unpredictable ways the balance and outcome of current and future conflicts elsewhere in the world. As To its own self interests of course, Japan depends upon trade with the world to survive. Therefore what happens around the globe can be interpreted as being completely just or justifiable as a matter of self-defense. It has become an extremely high-tech nation and has been westernized to a point that most people in the West do not appreciate. Well, I'd rather have them with us uh, than against us. So what's the definition of a just war? Well, just a war. That's from our humor department, which we call the jokes on us, because if you take the answer to that question seriously, then the joke is on you. And with that, well, and that's no joke. And with that, it's time to wrap up for today. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then.
6: Fade into color,
2: color into black and white.
0: You know, fiscally, we're getting double-donged in this culture. We're getting taxed way too high, and they don't even spend it effectively. And I'm getting sick of the left telling me what a fuck up I am, and then the next breath demanding 48% of my fed up okay? I was about the courtesy of a reach-around, guys. Most politicians are stiff. Let's face facts. Congress is just a place where we send mediocre men to be earl-shibed into looking kind of vaguely consequential, and politics is just in a bull world where my esteemed colleague means this prick here.